Thank you for listening to Remodeling Mastery by Mark G. Richardson, produced by Surefire Local. Over 50,000 people have listened to Mark's podcast series specifically for home improvement businesses. You can subscribe to this podcast on any mobile phone using iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Mark Richardson, and welcome to Remodeling Mastery. Remodeling Mastery is a podcast series that's designed to help you take your business to the next level. What I try to do is take some different topics that I think are really relevant out in the marketplace, but also thought-provoking that you can kind of look in the mirror and ask yourself some of these questions yourself. Additionally, what I try to do is have interviews, interviews of thought leaders in the remodeling industry, people that have been there, done it, people that have their ear to the ground in terms of what's happening in the marketplace. This podcast series is supported by Professional Remodeler Magazine, as well as NARI, the National Association of the Modeling Industry, and produced by Surefire Local, a leading digital marketing organization. Today, I want to have some opening remarks. They're really wrapped around, I think, something I'm seeing more and more of today than ever before. And it's what I'm calling misconceptions when it comes to a remodeling business or a healthy remodeling business. You know, I think the reality is that if you're led by misconceptions, if you're guided by beliefs that aren't necessarily true, then you're probably going to be making a mistake or have a lot of false positives with respect to something that's happening in your business that isn't necessarily good. You know, I know many, many years ago, about 30 years ago, I was on a cruise and on this cruise, there was a fitness as well as dietitian, And they said something to me that really, really hit a chord for me. And that was when you're trying to lose weight, 80% of your success is a product of diet and 20% is a product of exercise. Whereas if you're trying to maintain health in your weight, 80% is a product of your exercise and 20% is a product of the diet. It was kind of one of these conceptions, I think, that I had prior to that. I had a belief that, gosh, like many, if I just went to the gym, I should be able to be healthier or lose weight. But the reality is you'd go to the gym and you'd want to eat more and you wouldn't necessarily lose weight. So by that basic misconception that I had and by changing that misconception, I and certainly many others were able to be more successful. When it comes to the remodeling business, there's also a series of many misconceptions I'm seeing out there that I'm just going to give you a few. And I would encourage you to sit down, ask your team, jot down some misconceptions that are out there. And then if what you do is avoid those misconceptions, then chances are you're going to be more successful. Number one in my list of uh, 10 misconceptions that I want to talk about are A referral client is a good client for your business. The reality is every single client has to be evaluated very, very carefully. A referral client is an easy sale, but not necessarily a good client for your business. As you think about this, are all your neighbors that you might refer someone to ideal clients for that particular business you're referring to? Not necessarily. They may be an easy sale for that business because they're coming as a result of the referral, 
but they're not necessarily a good client. The second is 30 or 40% growth is great. It's something to be very proud of. Well, the reality is 30 to 40% growth is a little bit more like a crash diet. It's a little bit more of a danger zone type of level of growth. I encourage businesses, especially mature businesses, one that have been around for 10 years or more, to think in terms of what is the right sweet spot of growth. And most of the time, in normalized times, that right sweet spot is a 10 to 20% growth. So if you get above 20 or get into the 30, you're getting to kind of the risky levels here. And that's a misconception I think a lot of people have in terms of that that's really positive versus negative. Now, I'm not necessarily telling you to crank down your growth unnecessarily, but what I am doing is saying be careful to give yourself high fives on excessive levels of growth. The third I want to mention is profitability equals a healthy, successful business. Now, in my business, in my book, How Fit Is Your Business, I wrote about 10 criteria of a healthy business, just like looking at your cholesterol and your blood pressure. You might have very good blood pressure, but your cholesterol levels might be over the, over the top, and if you don't get them down, you might need medication. The same thing is true with profitability in a business. Profit is just one of the many elements that you need to look at in your business. And a misconception I think some businesses have when they have a good year, a variable prop, very profitable quarter, all of a sudden they think everything is going along very well and they have a very successful business. The next one I want to touch on is low gross profit on projects is a product of poor production or mistakes in production. Not necessarily true. I find, and this is not a popular belief, but at least 80% of the time when you have low GP, it's actually a product of what's sold, not necessarily what's produced. So when you're looking at GP and looking at your GP margins start to slip down, focus on the total process because you might find that the real root of the problem is more on the sales side of the equation, not necessarily the production side. Next misconception is uh, your strong remodeling companies in your area are your biggest competitors. The reality is, if you look at the market share of what business you're actually getting, you're going to find the best of the best out there have only a fraction of the market share of the home improvement dollars. So those strong remodelers are not the biggest competitors that you have. One of the things I've always found is your biggest competitor really today more than anything is the client itself. It's their fears. It's their ignorance. It's their misconceptions about what quality is and the differences. And I think the more that you put a focus on the client and how you can become a better marriage counselor, a better therapist, and better advisor to the client, that's going to be your biggest edge in terms of directing competitors. And actually, some of your strong remodelers in the community, they ought to be folks that you are actually embracing and learning from and, and emulating some of the good things that they're doing. The next one is personal referrals are the most important thing that you want to achieve. What's interesting, and Google actually did a study on this, is the homeowners today put more value in online reviews than they do personal referrals. And as you sit back and you think about that, 
Your online management, your online web presence is so critical to be successful. I think aligning yourself with the right kind of companies to be able to do that. But keep in mind, of course, you still want personal referrals. But if you have some bad reviews or you have not enough positive reviews, you're not going to necessarily see the success. And at the end of the day, people are making their decisions more based on a strong online review than they are what they're hearing from a word of the mouth uh, personal referral. The next one is as you're showing options, the more options I can show clients, the better. Not necessarily true. There is a book that's been written called The Paradox of Choice that I think really helps to understand this. When it comes to home remodeling, when it comes to selections, if you give the client only one selection, one choice, you're running the risk of losing that based on the choice you gave them, not based on who is the best person to work with them. You give them two, which is certainly better than one, but they will not be able to decide oftentimes with just two and they'll keep shopping. You give them six or seven, that's where I think it falls apart and the client gets paralyzed. They get overwhelmed. The proliferation of choices keeps them from proceeding. The magic number in terms of number of choices that you should be giving a client today is three choices. The power of three that allows them to frame the decision and allows them to give them the license and permission to be able to proceed with you and you're going to see a lot more success. The next misconception is bigger projects are better. Big, big mistake. Matter of fact, I was reading a little quote is I've never made as much money on a project that I didn't get as ones that I did get sometimes. Now, that's a wonderful, I think, adage to be able to think about. Think about those number of projects that are way, way out of your traditional comfort zone that you're celebrating getting that deal, but then a year later, you're sort of sorry that you got to it. Now, my big belief is that you should think about your projects almost like a target that you're shooting. And in the middle of the target is the bullseye. What's the right client and the right project for you? And the win is hitting the bullseye. The win is hitting the right size project. More times than not, those bigger projects they will push your numbers up, but push your margins down. And at the end of the day, they're going to turn out to be a, a certainly a loser. My last misconception, I think, is that if you sell more business, you're going to make more money. Now, what's interesting about it, you can find different plateaus when it comes to businesses that are more profitable and less. And a lot of times, it's more about selling the right projects, not necessarily more projects. So if you can put more of your spotlight on your gross profit margins and not necessarily just on your top line sales, you're going to actually see better returns. It's not unusual for that company that grows by a million or two million dollars to actually slip back in profitability because of lost margin or because of additional cost or training cost or even some attrition. So again, I want to thank everybody for listening to this segment. We've got a great interview coming up, so stay tuned. And again, I want to thank my friends at Professional Remodeler, as well as NARI, the National Associates Remodeling Industry, to supporting this podcast series, as well as Surefire Local, who's been a great partner, digital marketing partner, to help bring these podcast series to you. Speak to you shortly. I want to thank everybody for listening to Remodeling Mastery. 
But just as much, I want to thank those that support this particular series. Now, first and foremost, I want to encourage you not just to listen, but to subscribe. And for those people that subscribe to this podcast or actually reach out to my producers, Surefire, a leading digital marketing organization, you'll actually receive a copy of one of my books that will help you take your business to the next level. This podcast series is actually supported by Professional Remodeler. Professional Remodeler is committed to help you understand and crack the code on your business. So I encourage you to try to spend the time reading the magazine and reach out to them and be a little bit more of a voice in the industry. I also encourage you to get involved, get engaged. The National Association of Remodeling Industry, NERI, is a wonderful organization that I've been involved with with most of my career and actually had so many opportunities as a result of that. And lastly, certainly, reach out to my friends at Surefire Local that will be able to help you with your business. Hi, I'm Mark Richardson, and welcome back to Remodeling Mastery. Remodeling Mastery, of course, is a podcast series, and today I have a very special interview uh, that we'll be conducting with a friend of mine from California, Bill Baldwin. And he is a remodeler, a remodeler who has grown the business to a substantial place. His primary focus is in more the full service type remodeling. And we're going to be talking about, you know, his history, a little bit more how he got into the business, as well as some of the fundamentals and keys to success. So. Bill, welcome to Remodeling Mastery. Welcome. I mean, thank you. So, Bill, what I'd like to do in these conversations is get a little bit more history about kind of how you got into this business. And before we do that, give us a little bit of a profile of, of your business uh, and, and, and size and type of business and those kind of things. Well, we're we're True design build, and when I say that, since our inception, we've been a, a pretty balanced blend of architecture with architects on staff and uh, construction. We currently have that as well as interior design services. We're about 35 people at this point, and our revenue at, uh, last year was $21 million. And primarily wow. in the residential space, we'll do, some, we'll do some commercial work if it's artsy and fun, but primarily residential. Now, in your area of operation is primarily around Los Angeles? Yes, we started off with a much more constrained uh, zip code, kind of in and around where our first primary office was. And then the recession hit, and if we did one smart thing by default, we had started to market into a larger area. And that, that ability, when everybody else was kind of pulling back their marketing services, allowed us to kind of slingshot and pick up market share when the market returned. So at this point, even though we drive a lot more, we're pretty much all over Southern California. Excellent. So walk us through your history. And, and when I say your history, not just the business, but, you know, Bill Baldwin, because I think a lot of people who are listening to this probably either are in the earlier stages of their kind of business cycle. And I think they really appreciate what that journey and path looks like. Well, I, uh, it's kind of interesting. i the Hartman Baldwin was a, formerly a partnership. I bought my partner out, but we, uh, we began the business together in 1984. We had interesting backgrounds. I was an art and philosophy guy uh, and had a job as an artist, was planning on doing something along, more on the creative side of it. My partner spoke many languages, had been working on a castle in France, and he was doing painting work and working on homes. 
and we found each other, and uh, I think both of us had uh, admittedly other ideas about a, a much more artistic, adventuresome life outside of building, but it was both something we both knew and understood. And uh, in the end, we shook hands in a trench one day outside of an old carriage house we were restoring and, and formed a partnership. Excellent. So that was the, uh, that's how it gave birth. And, and how did, did you start right into design build or did you, uh, were you focused like many people of just kind of whatever the market really wanted them to do, you would do it? We were, I mean, in the very beginning we were doing, I'd say, whatever anybody wanted to do, but that probably didn't last much longer than a few months. We truly were design build from the beginning and, and, uh, very rarely worked with outside architects. And one of the only companies you know, we knew back then that was a company named Jersey Devils on the East Coast who was kind of our philosophical model for how can you really blend architecture and building you know, into one company. So as quickly as we could adopt that model and, and follow it, we stayed in it. Now, you clearly are a little bit more of a, a, one of the thinking kind of design-build. How do you define design-build and what – Talk to us a little bit about your philosophy about design build and your model. Well, it's, you know, it's become a bit ubiquitous now, and, and I think architects have a tendency to look at design build as being you know, a builder who brings on drafting, and yet there's many of us in the design build industry where that's not the case. I think uh, companies where we really are, you're a full service architecture firm as well, have started to flourish. And I think that you know, from a, from a client's perspective, when you look at the adversarial triangle that gets formed between an architect and a builder and a client, if you can really bring great services to a client and you can teach architects how to understand the building process and get the aesthetics and design intent inside the heads of your project managers, then it's a great symbiosis. And I think clients can see uh, the benefit of that. In a world of just nothing but specialists, it's nice to have single point accountability. So we've been refining and driving on that model since inception. Excellent. Now, you've obviously achieved uh, levels of growth and, and heights in this, in this industry that, you know, that very, very few other design-build companies have. Walk us through kind of that path and that journey to, you know, 20 million and doing design-build work. You know, it's, I think it's, in some senses, it's kind of the path that all small businesses go through. You get by on the entrepreneurs uh, just, just zeal and, and love for what they do, and then you get to that point where you're having to bolt on enough people who just follow you. I mean, they, they'll follow you just on passion alone. Then you get to that critical point where, for us, it was probably around maybe 9 or 10 million, where all of a sudden the, the necessary administrative functions and the details and processes you need to be able to bring on to, to repeat become a struggle. And I think all small businesses go through this, where you have to shift from entrepreneurial thinking into kind of a professionally managed thinking. And right about the time we hit that part, the recession hit. And for our company, it was kind of a rejuvenation of, you know, I bought my partner out. We had kind of an old guard that was not as interested in expanding. We had some young blood in the company who was really pushing to try to get that more professionally managed model. And we went through kind of a revolution in our company. And, and that's what I think launched us back. We were able to double that revenue by coming back as kind of a reunited force but run more as a professionally managed company and less than just kind of the thoughts and visions of an owner. Now, you use the term professionally managed versus entrepreneurial, and obviously 
your entrepreneurial spirit, you know, certainly never fully goes away. So it, 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 it's obviously a blend. But why don't you walk us through or try to articulate a little bit further the difference between that $7 million entrepreneur-driven, you know, almost an evangelist, so to speak, that people are following you versus this $20 million, you know, professionally managed fu- function? Well, I, I, I think the key, the biggest point is that, you know, most companies, even on their way up to $7 million, so are, are, are run from one, one or two people at the top. And almost all the issues that need to be fixed are attributed that they should be done by people at the top. We began to do strategic planning. So every year we do an off-site meeting with every one of the managers in the company. And we, you know, look at where our goals are for the next two, few years. And we divide up all the details of what we need to accomplish in a three-year span and in the next year. So the difference it becomes that it's a, it's a repeatable process and it's understood by different people who have definable power within the company as opposed to just simply, you know, at the, at the beck and whim of an entrepreneur, no matter how sophisticated you are. So it becomes a much more manageable model. That and written down repeatable processes and key meetings that, not too many meetings, but key meetings to make sure you're keeping the ship on the right path. Now, there's a lot of folks out there. I know what you just said, Bill, really, really resonates for them. They've hit that kind of ceiling of that, you know, six, seven, eight million dollar and, and they're struggling. What would you say to them uh, in terms of maybe either how to get started or what to read or what tools potentially to kind of bust through that ceiling and and potentially be able to move to, you know, higher altitudes? I think, you know, we we are such a culture-driven company. I will tell you that the first thing, if you're trying to, in my opinion, if you're trying to become more sophisticated, if you're trying to raise your revenue, if you're trying to become a larger company, it has to start with, you know, do you have a, a tribe that's in lockstep? And that's been one of the keys for us. I mean, there's a, there's a sign over both of our offices that say, see, Antoine St. Soupery, the little Prince author's uh, quote that says, if you want people to build ships, don't get them to drum up people to get wood or assign them tasks or work, teach them along for the immensity of the sea. So for us, you know, we want, talented, passionate people. And, you know, the joke around our company is if we interview people, we'll talk about their lives and hopes and dreams and, you know, art and food and travel. And if we really, really love them, then we'll look at their resume. And I think that's been one of the key lessons for us is that we rarely fire somebody based on a technical issue. Someone doesn't leave our company on the basis of that. It's always on the basis of, do you fit in the culture? And, and I, I'm sure this Everybody in our business knows this. It's, it's tough to get a good group of people together and keep them there. So I think the key thing is if you don't have a culture that's in lockstep, you can't honestly look around and say, do I have the right people here on the bus? Then it's very difficult, I think, to get above that level. Second to that, I would say strategic planning, I would, I would tell you, having a business plan and having processes in place and having an honest assessment uh, is a wonderful thing to do. And I think you either get a really good facilitator there are wonderful books out there, uh, and, and online you dial in, uh, you know, type in strategic planning and you'll get the phone book. But I think a facilitator is worth people's time, at least in the beginning, to kind of get you on the right path. And I think your key people will accept a facilitator helping you put that together so it's not all just upwardly attributed to you as well. You know, something that resonates, and I think most of our listeners have certainly heard, if not read the book, Good to Great, where Jim Collins talks about 
step one when it comes to your talent is get the right people. Then step yep. two is put them, find, put them in the right seat in the bus. And I think it's just the opposite of the way that oftentimes folks in the remodeling industry think. They think, okay, I need a craftsman, and here's the skill sets they need. They may be the wrong person, but at least I'm finding – I'm clear in terms of the seat of the bus. And as yeah. a result, that tends to, you know, kind of implode on them, and they scratch their head six months or a year later, and they said what happened, and they just didn't start with the right person. No, and you're, that, the key to, the key to uh, finding great, you know, wonderfully team-oriented, talented people is that sometimes it means that the development of your company is going to go a bit slower, right? The need when a bunch of work hits the door, the desire to go out and look at someone's resume and say, this person can do the job and bring them in in the short you know, call to be able to do the work oftentimes blows up on you. If you find you know, fairly younger people who are not, you know, not nuanced in the way of how everybody else does it out there and you can train them within your own organization and raise people up from within, you always will have a better solid tribe. The only issue to that is that it's a little bit slower growth path. You have to turn down some work, and it takes more time to develop those people. But developing the right people, and I think everybody in business knows how much time we've spent, because most people in this business are, are still ultimately somewhat soft-hearted inside. <laughs> we spend a lot of people time, time, excuse me, time trying to manage people who probably are best in another business, and that takes up too much of our time. Very, very well said and, and, and good advice. So. You've grown this business uh, over the course of the last, gosh, it's uh, 30-some years, correct? 35. 35 years. Yeah. Uh, so what's, what, where do you go from here? What's the next step for Bill Baldwin? Well, I have, I have a key management team in place. So I am CEO and I'm in sales, but I have you know, direct reports in sales and marketing, and I have a very talented COO as well. So uh, I, I think the sky is kind of the limit. We think our process – can be uh, applied to many things. So if someone came to us and wanted to build a skyscraper or a blimp, we think the design build process that we have could probably uh, handle that. So we're, uh, we're kind of hungry for new challenges and, and uh, networking in with new areas of Los Angeles. So we're continuing to expand. Excellent. Excellent. Do you see, you know, that level of focus that you've had uh, or do you see the, the, the real opportunities are more, you know, in the diversity uh, of, of projects and diversity of markets as being the key to success? I think that, I think that diversity is good. And there's diverse, diversification and diversification. You've got to make sure you're competent at each of them. But, yeah, I think the recession probably has shown everybody that if you have multiple products, maybe a maintenance division, maybe small projects division, there's people out there who are, you know, and we're looking at all those things, too. There's ADUs in California, accessory dwelling units. So diversity, I think, is very good. But also you want to be able to, to always know which of your horses are coming in that you want to put the most money behind. So it's kind of a combination, I would say. Excellent. So getting into the final leg of our conversation here, Bill, if you had to kind of boil it down, uh, you know, you have a big, big pot of obviously experiences lots of scars and bruises and you're looking and it's boiling and you look at the bottom of the pot and there are three kind of nuggets or three kind of crown jewels in terms of advice for people what would they be what would what would those three kind of keys success or or, or lessons learned be that would be interesting well i would say the first one of of that you're 
culture is the key. We may, not, we may think we're in a business of, of uh, nails and boards, and we may look at financials for a bottom line, but uh, the right money, money will come if you have the right people together. So that's absolutely number one. The second one, uh, I think, is you have to learn as a business owner to get out of your own way. Part of that arc on that moving from being a, just entrepreneurial to being professionally managed and having a company that could transcend you is that you have to realize what you're good at, what you're not, honestly, be able to hire around that and be able to delegate and, and delegate well. So if, if, you're, if you can do that with a successful tribe, you're in a wonderful spot. I, I love the, the Charles de Gaulle line that the graveyards are filled with indispensable people. So no matter who we are at the top, there are other people out there who will fill your position. And then uh, thirdly, I guess I would say, and I've, I have conversations with other people who've left our company and gone on to start their companies is, you know, make sure, make sure you are enforcing a good work-life balance for yourself and for everybody in the company. That will pay off in long-term dividends. may not see it at the moment, but the more that that then starts at the top, it starts with you and your family. Uh, you can brave any storm if you're healthy and you have healthy relationships. I've learned that too. Excellent, excellent advice. And Bill, I want to thank you for uh, joining me today on Remodeling Mastery. And I want to also thank our supporters with the National Association of the Modeling Industry, as well as Professional Remodeler Magazine uh, for really, and, and those friends at Surefire Local for bringing this to you. So, Bill, I look forward to uh, seeing you again sometime soon, and uh, thank you for sharing some of this uh, important wisdom for our listeners. Well, thanks, Mark. Thanks very much. Thanks for having the talk with me. Okay. Take care. If you liked what you've heard, take a moment to subscribe to Remodeling Mastery on your phone using your favorite podcast app. It's available on all the major apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Go ahead and post in the comments what you learned and any questions you have for Mark, and he may answer them on an upcoming episode. Thank you again for listening to Remodeling Mastery by Mark G. Richardson.